I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. Your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 92. Today in the show, we're joined by map-making expert Ben Harshine to discuss how maps can make you a better deer hunter. Alright, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, brought to you by Sitka Gear. And today we are talking about one of the very most important tools a hunter will ever use, and a skill set that will without a doubt make you a better deer hunter. And we're talking about maps, and aerial photos, and topography lines, and cover, and terrain, and funnels, and so, so much more. I just think this is going to be an awesome episode. So we're going to be discussing the many different things you can see and learn about on maps and how those various features actually look on the ground and then finally how deer use them. So, you know, you've probably heard me and Dan talk about how often we stare at maps and that's for a good reason. It's not just because we're lazy and don't want to do real work. It's because you can learn so much from maps and because they can help you implement a really sound deer hunting strategy. So that's the plan for today. We're going to cover all of these topics I just mentioned and much more in as much detail as we possibly can. And joining us is Ben Harshine, a map-making guru with a serious pedigree in cartography and a hardcore whitetail addict who recently moved to the great state of Iowa. So that's the good news. The bad news, though, is that my trusty co-host Dan Johnson could not join us today, unfortunately. So he's not going to be able to share with you his latest shed hunting exploits as we'd planned. But I can tell you that both I and Dan put the shed hunting advice that we covered in the last episode to good use as we actually both found a good haul of sheds this past weekend, and I actually found my two largest Michigan sheds yet, so that was pretty awesome. So nonetheless, next week Dan should be back, and I'm guessing we're both going to have some good stories because I'm heading to Iowa this weekend, and I'm going to have three full days of shed hunting, and hopefully he's going to be able to escape some of his adult responsibilities to join me for a little bit of that, and uh, if things go well, we'll hopefully have some good shed hunting stories to share, So, so stay tuned for all that. But with all that said, since there's no co-host for me to BS with today, we're going to get right into our interview with Ben. But briefly before that, we're going to take a quick second to thank our sponsors of this podcast, Sitka Gear. And 
This week, as you might have guessed, we've got Sitka product category leader Dennis Zuck with us, and I wanted to ask Dennis about a program that launched last year for which Sitka created a group called the Sitka Whitetail Ambassador Team, which I'm actually a part of, as well as our guest today, Ben Harshan. So, Dennis, what's the deal with this Sitka Whitetail Ambassador Team? Yeah, and, and it's something we're really excited about, you know, because we think about who we're building for and the guys out there that we're trying to, to create great products for. You know, a lot of them, they are those ambassador types of guys. You know, these are people who who are driven. They hunt hard. You know, they care about a lot about their gear, their bow, everything they own. Um, they really analyze all the details. Um, and, you know, for us, we want to make sure we're taking, we're working with those guys to create great gear and coming up with those next great ideas. And, and we're helping them understand, you know, well, why the sick and make products the way they do. And, and, and they become that voice. You know, these guys are, are guys who, who are going to be able to relay that message, you know, to, to their buddies, to the other guys that they live around the hunt with and help them understand, you know, how does, how does some of the things we talked about in these podcasts, you know, so why wicking layers? Why insulation? You know, these are these guys are going to carry that message for us, and and we're super excited to have them. And they're going to carry a, an authentic message back to us around you know what's missing, what else. So for someone who feels like they fit that profile, is there any way for people to proactively, possibly? become a part of that process or that that type of group yeah i mean so absolutely you know we're sick of web page and a lot of our social media formats you know believe it or not we pay a lot of attention and we're watching the people who are posting and who are active who are asking questions very interested um we you know we seek those folks out you know people don't know that we reach out to those folks but we do and the ambassadors are are groups of people who will come from that so if that's something you're interested in be active be involved um give your input Um, We do notice. We pay attention. So there you have it. And in addition to what Dennis said, if you're interested in seeing what some of the current Sitka Whitetail Ambassadors are up to, you can check out on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook the hashtag SitkaSWAT. That's Sitka, S-I-T-K-A, SWAT, S-W-A-T. That stands for Sitka Whitetail Ambassador Team. So check out hashtag SitkaSWAT for some of the photos and videos that all these guys and gals are posting. There's some great stuff out there. And if you'd just like to learn more about Sitka Gear, you can visit SitkaGear.com. So, with all that out of the way, it is now time to get Mr. Ben Harshine on the line. All right, with us now on the show is Ben Harshine. Welcome to the show, Ben. Thanks for having me, Mark. Yeah, excited to to get to chat with you. We've been able to uh, talk on the phone a handful of times over the past year or two, and I, I always get these little snippets of your map, I don't know, your map, uh, just genius. I hear some things that your your background always intrigues me. And I, I've wanted to like just like totally pick your brain and geek out on maps because, you know, if Dan was here, I know he'd be feeling the same way. Me and him are just map nuts. We are obsessed with them. We're always looking at them. We're always thinking about them. We're dreaming about them and going through all the various little planning or scouting elements that are tied into maps so it's something we love and it's nice to be on the line with someone who i who i think shares that same love so so thank you ben this is going to be a lot of fun um yeah looking forward to it and and that all said i you know just before we got on the phone with you i did a brief introduction um for our audience and i I basically explained two basic things that you're a map guru and that you're a whitetail nut so (laughs) with that little bit already out of the way could you just elaborate a little bit for us on, you know, 
where your map uh, background came from, what's your education, what do you do now, and how has all of that merged in with your love of deer hunting? Yeah, sure thing. So, um, first off, born and raised in uh, western Pennsylvania and uh, went to school at, at Penn State um, for, actually I have a degree in geography, but, but my, my emphasis in all of my studies um, were towards um, geographic information systems. A lot of people know it as GIS, but really what I focused on was, was cartography. So the actual, um, the study of the, the production and the design of maps is really what, what, uh, what I pursued in college. And, and it took me down to uh, Washington, D.C. area, where I worked as a, as a contractor making maps for um, the military and the National Counterterrorism Center. Um, had a you know pretty unique experience in in doing that, and and I uh, spent seven years there um, making maps for Finnish intelligence products that were essentially briefed to decision makers on uh, events that, that were happening around the world. So uh, it, was, it was a phenomenal uh, experience for sure. And uh, around 20, I believe it was 2010, um, actually I made a map of, um, so being in Western Pennsylvania, um, I was basically raised on uh, hunting ground that was fall forest. So if you look at the, uh, if you look at the image uh, from, you know, an online map source and it would just basically look like nothing but a sea of green. So I made a map um, for my dad for Father's Day that basically depicted the terrain inside of, of, um, on that property. So, you know, standard imagery is just going to show you nothing but green and you really can't differentiate what's going on on the property. I figured out a way to actually visualize the terrain there. And that was kind of a game changer for us. It was at the time a pretty cool gift for him. And we used it to, you know, further enhance our scouting efforts and, and our hunting success. And, uh, you know, terrain plays a, a big picture in, uh, what you look for as a deer hunter, which I'm sure we'll get into. But anyways, I made that map and, and, and uh, he showed it to his buddies and, you know, they were pretty excited about it. They ordered maps from me and word just kind of organically spread. And I decided to create a business called Huntera Mapping. And um, it was awesome. I continued to work as a contractor and uh, in my spare time made these maps, make some uh, pocket chains for hunting season, you know, and, and it just continued to build and, and grow. And I really focused on um, bringing something different to the table for map production, specifically for hunters, because it was my passion. And um, that's what I enjoyed doing in my free time. So um, fast forward to uh, be like the fall of, of, of 2014. And uh, my wife and I realized that, you know, it was kind of decision time as far as what we're going to do with it. It was consuming all of our time all of our, all of our, our spare time. And, uh, we decided to, you know what, let's, let's go after this thing. And, and we packed up and, um, uprooted everything from Northern Virginia, moved to the Midwest to, to give it, uh, Ontario everything we had and, and, uh, to really get into the thick of, um, where we do a lot of marketing. We've got a lot of partners out here and clients. Um, we make maps for all over the country, but, um, aside from that, you know, I'm a whitetail hunting fanatic and there's really, uh, arguably no better place to be than, than in Iowa. So we landed in, uh, in, in Eastern Iowa and, uh, set up shop and that's where we are today. That's awesome, Ben. And, and I just really love your story because I feel like I can relate to it a lot being, uh, 
you know, a one man show myself, at least starting, you know, I know that you started from the ground up with you and your wife and, and I've kind of followed in a similar path and I know that's a challenge and it, it's pretty cool though to be able to merge that, that background and skills that you have with map making and all that goes into that with your love for whitetails. Um, so, so I, I love that story, but here's the, here's the real question, Ben, you made the move to Iowa that, you know, I sit and dream about every day. Um, so your, I think your first full hunting season in Iowa was this past fall. Was it everything you dreamed it would be? Yeah, you know, it was pretty phenomenal. Um, I got access to, so the first, I've never, um, got enough points to, to come hunt Iowa before we've actually moved here. And I've hunted the Midwest, um, I've been hunting the Midwest a good bit here over the past decade, um, but never in this state. So uh, when we landed here, I got to the point where I was a resident long enough where I could buy a tag. And um, yeah, I got access to uh, a nice property for archery season this past year. And it, it was funny. Uh, it's essentially uh, a combination of, of a cattle farm and CRP ground. And there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of fencing on the property, but, um, regardless, I had a couple of small food pots that I, I put in and, um, right off the bat, we had a good wind, uh, October 2nd, uh, to, to hunt a stand in the middle of the property and, uh, right off the food plot. And my parents were in town. We we're actually doing some work on the basement of the house that, that we bought. And, you know, I said to my dad, man, this would be awesome timing to go sit Iowa for my first time with you, you know, with the man who, who, you know, fueled the, the introduced me to, to hunting and fueled the, the passion that I have today. So, um, it was like perfect timing, went down there and, uh, didn't expect to see, you know, a, a big deer necessarily right off the bat. My cameras were pretty, not, not showing too much. Um, but sure enough, uh, ended up encountering a, a really good deer. I, I'm, I'm guessing, uh, five and a half years old or, or older, um, that first evening and he was just annihilating a tree and he oh, came man. out to the food plot. You know, uh, I was thinking, I really want to, you know, get a good fit in here in Iowa this, this first, uh, this first, you know, this first year and, and, and get a whole season in there. But if he comes by, I'm going to have to shoot him. And he didn't come by, but I ended up encountering that deer eight different times, um, from October 2nd to December 4th. and I never could catch up to him. So, um, no, it was awesome though. And it was, uh, uh, a lot of high quality, you know, high value sits here. So it was a lot of fun, special place to be. That is awesome. That's, that's pretty cool to have one of those first hunts to have such an experience like that. I, uh, that doesn't happen very often, but it happened to me once my first time ever hunting my Southern Ohio property that I hunt now a lot. And the very first time I ever hunted it, I saw this huge four-year-old buck, four or five-year-old buck that I, I came to call Jawbreaker and I've talked about a lot on the podcast and stuff. So that was kind of cool. So I, I hope that you, I hope you can continue that story and that hunt next year. Do you know if he made it to, to the new year? Yeah, pretty sure he did make it. And, um, looking forward to, to, um, you know, hopefully pursuing them again. And in my eyes, you know, at this point in my, my career of hunting, um, and I think I spoke to you, uh, to you about this before, but it's really, um, for me, the ultimate trophy is, is creating history with one specific animal and building that, you know, that quest to, um, try to figure him out. And that, that chess match between the two is really, um, that's the ultimate trophy. And then eventually catching up to him would be icing on the cake. So, 
um, yeah, I've got a good opportunity to do that. And I think he did survive. So we'll see what happens. That's exciting. I, uh, I, I 100% agree with you. That is my favorite thing about, you know, as I've kind of moved in my journey as a deer hunter, that my absolute favorite thing now has been this opportunity to get to know a deer over multiple years and have all those, all those ups and downs and encounters and challenges and, and maybe once it all comes together. So, man, that's cool. Is he, um, you said he was a five-year-old? How, like, what kind of, is he, like, really wide? You know, is he really tall? What's, what's his rack story? Yeah, so um, the, the reason, it, it kind of gets, you know, and there's a lot of opinions about aging deer on the hoof and whatnot. Um, but, you know, he just had this giant, giant body, deep, sagging belly, kind of a, 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 a swooping low low back, almost like a saddle, which is what we're going to talk about. Um, just had this look of a deer that was fully mature. Um, so not, not, you know, that's why I was guessing five and a half, but as far as his rack, uh, probably a low sixties deer, just a really high, um, decently heavy, perfectly clean 10. So, um, yeah, he's awesome. He, I actually named him pork. My dad's nickname is pork and all my buddies know my dad is pork. And it's funny because it, I was with my dad when I saw this deer and he came out and was like, Oh my gosh, he is just huge body. And so he got dubbed the nickname pork. And, and, uh, uh, it's, it's funny. I'm, you know, actually looking at the map right now from my farthest, you know, if you, if you should take my four stands farthest from each other, kind of like the outer edges of what, where I chased this deer, you're only looking at probably, um, a hundred acres of really good cover and, and a couple um, varieties of food sources. So, um, the farm is, 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 is larger than that, but I really, between encounters and camera sightings dialed into him or saw him a bunch, he just was always one step ahead of me. So it's interesting to kind of, you know, as cliche as it sounds, look at the map and really see where, you know, what the story is telling you. So. Yeah. So are, do you fall prey to the same thing that me and Dan do? Or do you ever find yourself not working because you're just staring at a map and thinking about that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So for sure, uh, in, in, in my <laughs> office here, I've got a big map of, of, of that property and, and actually, uh, so I'm, I'm looking at that, you know, all year I was looking at that thing, trying to figure out how I'm going to, um, intercept, uh, pork, but I've also got maps of, um, properties that I, I probably won't ever hunt again that I've had some really memorable hunts on and, and, uh, you know, these, these maps here are just, as a hunter, they're, they're a tool, but they're also like the perfect way to, to look at, you know, and, and, and bring up and drum up memories again. So, um, I'm fanatical about maps. I'm fanatical about hunting, but you know, the fact is these maps can be trophies in their own right too. So they're definitely like the ultimate distraction, you know, in, in a, you know, white tail hunter's office. Yeah. Yeah. And no, I agree. Yeah. And, and to your, to your point, they're kind of, especially, you know, really nice maps like yours. It's almost like art itself. You know, just, you can stare at that and it, it's memories. It's a story. It's a, it's a tool too, but in and of itself, it kind of takes you into that world and can kind of transport you to that other place, whether it be looking on your computer at a map or a real map on the, on the wall, a great looking map or whatever it is, maps kind of have a way of, of taking us to that other place. That's, that's kind of special in a, in a kind of floaty weird way, I guess, but it, but it's pretty cool. Um, yeah, yeah, for sure. I, I, I kind of geek out about it. So without getting too far down that path, I suppose, you know, given 
all of your background maps, right? You've got a, a, a very unique skill set compared to a lot of people we talk to, you know, myself and Dan and a lot of our guests, like we're serious deer hunters. So we use maps, but no one I've talked to has this experience as, as to how maps are made or what are the specifics of a map? What are the details on a map that maybe I'm not noticing or thinking about? So, so kind of before we dive into all the different ways that hunters can use maps, and there's a lot of them, and I want to talk about, you know, what to look for on maps and what those things look like in real life. How do hunters use them? How do deer use them? There's a lot of that kind of stuff I want to cover. But before we get to all that, I think it might be helpful to just cover some of the basics, you know, for those of us maybe that are relatively familiar or those that maybe aren't familiar at all with how to use all these different kinds of maps. But could you maybe start us out with, you know, helping us understand some of the terminology? Are there any basic terms that we need to understand related to maps before we can dive into all the other details? Yeah, for sure. So we'll start right at the top. Um, sometimes the word cartography, you know, comes up and some people are like, man, what is that? So cartography, you know, as I mentioned before, is the, the, the um, practice of designing maps. And with maps, you always got layers of information. Um, there's a lot of different types of maps and charts out there. They've got goals of um, displaying, um, you know, for navigation purposes, um, display, displaying quantitative and qualitative differences in data, but it's all basically uh, showing geography and location and the story on top of that. So without telling you the, the history of mapping here, really what, what we want to focus on um, are a couple of different layers of information and how they relate to the geography of where you're hunting. Um, specifically, the, the, the two layers, and that's really where Huntera, and this isn't going to be a big pitch about my company or anything like that, but an important piece of the puddle, puzzle here are two factors. You've got topography, which um, sometimes that gets twisted around in, in really what that is, but you've got topography, which are essentially the features that comprise elevation changes throughout the property. So anywhere that you have elevation rise or fall, whether it's drastic or gradual, those features like hills, ridges, saddles, valleys, those features are pertaining to topography. Now, in addition to the topography, we talk about land cover, which is the other layer to, the, to this picture. And land cover is really uh, what you see from, from your online viewer, whether it's Google or Bing or whatever. Um, it's going to be the picture of the earth, and, and the land cover is, is the, the timber versus open ground versus water versus man-made features. So really the picture that you see is typically the land cover, and there's things that we look for there as deer hunters. Then there's topography, which are your terrain features and your elevation changes, which is there's features there that, that we look for as well. So um, those are really the two main things that we look for, and, and what we design as, as map makers, um, we're blending those two to be able to give you the, the full picture um, of how an animal is going to move from A to B to C and how you're going to intercept them on the property. So so you mentioned two different types of maps, sort of, or layers of maps. Um, and right, right, you've got an aerial map, which you mentioned, maybe it's a Google map or whatever it might be that shows a picture 
like cover, like a satellite view almost. Then you have a, a topo map or a topo layer, which shows, sure. um, which shows that elevation changes you mentioned. I want to kind of dive into yeah. a little more detail on both of those. And then I know that you're able to do something a little bit different comparing both of those. If you're okay with it, I'd like to start on the two individuals and with an aerial and then with a topo map individually, can you say, can you share with us, you know, what is that best used for? And then what do you miss with that? And then, you know, maybe you can share a little bit with how the maps you're making maybe account for some of those challenges. Yeah, yeah, sure. So we'll start with the aerial and, and really that dates back to the, oh man, I, I've actually, uh, I think there's imagery back into the 40s maybe. Regardless, essentially the aerial is a, 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 a picture from the sky shooting down on your onto the land. And from there you can distinguish um, your, where your, your, your fields are. So you can distinguish agricultural fields, which is, you know, potential food sources to CRP fields where there could be cover, pasture ground, meadows. That's really your, your open ground. You can, you can see the timber, um, sometimes depending on whenever that aerial was taken, uh, you can differentiate between whether, um, that timber is, has hardwoods in it or if it's comprised of conifers or both since conifers will hold their needles uh, all year you can distinguish that in a wintertime aerial shot um, sometimes you can differentiate whether an area is thicker uh, than other places um, so that's regarding timber you can see your water feature features at times your streams ponds lakes your swamps and then of course whatever man-made features are, are, are in that area as well, you know, farmsteads and roads, um, even fence lines. So uh, that's what an aerial is going to give you. And where typically, unless you're in really rugged terrain, where, where, what that is not going to show you is the elevation changes. So there might be a nice ridge line going along, cutting through the middle of that, that, that timber that you can't see, or there might be, um, fingers of timber that are uh, jutting out into agricultural ground, and you can't necessarily tell that there are ditches in the middle of that timber, which could really uh, kind of funnel where deer are going to move and where you want to potentially you know, set up a stand site. So that's where your trade-off is going to be with your, your aerial photo, but it's going to give you a really good idea of what uh, what is on the ground there. Um, now I'll transition to your traditional topo map uh, originally made by the um, u.s geological survey usgs usgs topo maps uh, a lot of people are familiar for and they're essentially those maps that uh, have lines uh, contour lines that cut around the elevation that represent elevation at certain heights and uh, those lines whenever you look at it holistically can tell you where your gradual elevation changes are, where your steep elevation changes are, and you can actually distinguish. You can look at a topo map and, and literally distinguish the the major and minor terrain features um, of of the land. So it's interesting. I learned back in school. If you in the reader, or the not the readers, but the audience can can do this. If you make a fist like you're going to punch yourself in the face, believe it or not, and you, you look at that fist, okay, 
at the, the, the entire line of your knuckles, that's going to be your ridge line. So this is basically a diagram I'm, I'm laying out for the, the terrain features that we'll be talking about. So it, it'll sometimes help people visualize what exactly what we're looking for. So your, your knuckles, those are your ridge lines. And then, I'm sorry, all, all of the knuckles on your hand is your ridge line. And then the individual knuckles, those are hills. So um, those are going to be the highest points of ground. In between your knuckles are going to be your saddles. So the lower points in between your hills and along a ridge are your saddles. Um, we talk a lot about spurs, which are sometimes considered secondary ridges. Looking at the top of the map there, you've got your main ridge, and you've got these other ridges that seem to be coming off of it. Those traditionally are called spurs. And if you're looking at the fist, those are basically your fingers uh, coming off of the ridge line. And then in between those spurs are draws, which are basically, sometimes they're considered ditches as well. They're basically small valleys that come off of your saddles that uh, from, from water eroding. And, and those are your draws. So those are some of the, some of the, uh, terrain features that come up in the terminology we use as deer hunters, and I know that's a lot to digest initially, but it's pretty interesting. You can actually see the diagram online um, where that, that hand uh, demonstrates all of these different terrain features that are important to us. I love um, that. That's a great that's a great way to visualize this stuff because I think a lot of these you hear these terms, and if you're not auto, if you're not already very familiar with it it can be kind of difficult to visualize. So that's a really easy, it's a really easy way to do it. And, uh, I've never heard someone explain it that way. Yeah. So it's, it's, I know Dan would be, if he was here, he'd be getting a kick out of it. You know, act like you're going to punch yourself in the face, but, um, yeah, it, it is. It's, uh, sometimes that terminology gets, um, I don't want to say misused, but it's good to kind of call, these things what they really are so that as we're talking as deer hunters we can actually be consistent with you know whenever we're sharing our information but um yeah those terrain features um that all kind of come from that 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 hand um that is really what we is going to tell us the story of how deer are, are moving uh, just wildlife in general moving around around the property so yeah, and I love that you mentioned all those because those are some of the things that I definitely wanted to make sure we, we dove into in detail. Uh, but, but before we get to that, one other aspect, you mentioned a lot of these different features that you can, that you can see on a topographic map. Um, but one of the challenges, I think, if someone picks up a topo map for the first time is they look at this and it's just all these squiggly lines. And it, it's hard to make sense of if you don't have sort of an education yeah. in how to use topo maps. Is it... Can you share just a, just a simple explanation of how to look at a topo map? I understand the the analogy used with the fist, um, but you know when I look at the lines and all that, is there any way to explain that verbally? Yeah, so um, the the simplest one that's going to jump out to you if you if you don't have much experience with a, a standard topo map is um, look for areas that have the lines close together. So a line is essentially a consistent elevation. And then you've got your next line, which is that, that next elevation, whether it's uh, a 10 foot difference or a 50 foot difference between lines. And each map is going to tell you what that 
that that uh, that difference in interval is. But whenever you have contour lines that are tight together, that represents a drastic elevation change in a short amount of time. So um, a cliff, take a cliff, for example. Everybody knows what a cliff is, and that's actually considered a, a, officially a minor uh, terrain feature. Um, but a cliff is going to have many lines right on top of each other, if not right next to each other, symbolizing that the land is, is, is coming across and then basically dropping straight down. Now, on the other hand, if you try to find, um, if you see areas where lines are farther apart from each other, that's going to be a gradual flatter area. So longer distances in between elevation change means more gradual slope. So those are the two main things you can get right off the bat off of a topo map. And then there's other things, fancier things you can look for. And, you know, it's, it's kind of hard to describe um, just without visualizing it, you know, with a graphic or something, but um, saddles. Well, first we'll start with hills. Hills are going to be basically the circles. As you see, these contour lines work its way up the slope. And the very, very top one essentially is a circle that represents the highest elevation point on that area. So that's going to be your hill. Well, if you have two hills side by side with a lower area in between, and I think basically that'll kind of look like an hourglass, like the skinny part of an hourglass, that's going to be your saddle. Um, so these are features that you can basically pick out with the topo map. They're going to, if you start to study how these contour lines move um, and, and relate to each other, it's going to tell you a lot about um, the ruggedness or the lack thereof on your, on your property. So um, another one that, that we look for are, are valleys. So if you can get a grasp on, okay, here's my highest point, uh, here, here, here's my hill, and here's where it's sloping down, and then it basically comes to the bottom, um, and then it, you can tell it starts to work its way back up. Well, that crease in the middle is going to be your valley. Sometimes, it, a lot of times, it's a stream bed, so water naturally flows down because of gravity. And a lot of times, you're going to find your water on that property in that valley. So, um, that's something that can really, um, you know, help you get a grasp once you really start to understand, okay, here's an area that has a higher elevation. Here's my slope. It's going downhill. Boom, there's a valley. And then you can look in there. And if, if the topo, topo map is really getting uh, able to, if it's really able to, uh, to be um, detailed enough, you'll be able to pick out things like benches. So a bench, and this is really our bread and butter back in Pennsylvania with my dad and I and some of our stand locations, a bench is essentially, you've got a pretty steep hill coming off of a ridge and you've got, um, basically those lines come farther apart. So they're, they're pretty close together, pretty close together. Then they're uh, wider for a little while. That represents a flat area on the side of the hill. And then maybe we'll start to drop down again. So it's pretty, the top of that can be kind of, tricky to work with if you don't have familiarity with it um, on, you know, a consistent basis. But uh, that's really 
whenever we added that feature on top of some of the other relief shading and everything we do with Hunter, it really was a game changer for, for, for what, what we were doing because not only did you have the aerial photo, you have topo mappings telling you land cover funnels and pinch points and features, and it's telling you terrain funnels and pinch points and features. Yeah, yeah, it makes a huge difference. And one of the things with topo maps, I don't know if, if this is something other people do, but you know, when I, when I first started looking at topo maps, it was just like, I felt like I was looking at a maze or something that I just did not yeah. process at all in my head. But then like I started doing the things like you mentioned, I started looking for the hills. Okay, that if that's a hill, then okay, that must be a valley and that must be a ridge. And as you start to like, intellectually understand that, it almost feels like did you ever did you ever look at those books back when you were like in school like these 3D books like you stared at an image and if you stared at it long enough in a certain way all of a sudden this 3D image comes out do you know what I'm talking about yeah that, oh, that, yeah yeah for sure like optical illusions or something you know almost yeah. like that yeah exactly so it's almost like that with a topo map now for me where like if I now that I once I figure out okay these are the high points these are the low points and I look at it in a certain way, it almost becomes like three-dimensional in a way and you can see it. Um, but that takes a while to like see it that way, which is why I really like what you're, what you're doing with your maps because you're, you're adding the actual relief and shading so that it stands out and it actually looks like it's higher or lower. And so, you know, even if somebody, even if somebody wasn't going to buy a new map or anything, it, it would be helpful for people just to almost look at, you know, for example, I've got, uh, maps that you had created Ben for me of some of my hunting properties that I've that I've included on blog posts and things for Wired to Hunt, where it shows this aerial image of a farm with the topography, with the terrain elevation, uh, the the shading and stuff as you mentioned shown, plus the topo map, so you can see the topo lines overlaid over the actual relief imaging, which can almost help you align in your head, okay, those lines like that look like that. And so you can then, if you were to separate it, then it makes a little bit more sense. It's almost like a training mechanism. If you don't have any experience at all, um, it's helpful to, to look at a picture to then say, okay, that's what the picture looks like. This is what it looks like in topo lines. Um, it's, it's a great, it's a great tool. And, and obviously having it all layered in one map is the, is the ultimate, which is why I love using those, those maps, but there's a lot, it takes some experience. It takes looking at these things and, and kind of just becoming, getting your brain and your eye used to how to read it before you can then start laying, layering over how to deer use these things. So it's, it's definitely a process. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure. So, so okay. Let, let's say hypothetically, right? We we understand how to look at these maps and read them, whether it's an aerial or a topo or all three combined. Um, now that we have these maps and an understanding, how are you actually using them as a hunter? I, I mean, for me, I use maps in a couple different ways. I'm I'm looking at them when I'm scouting a property, even before I go on the ground. I'm looking at it when I'm actually hunting, when I'm setting things up or thinking about how deer might use it or how I might, you know, enter and exit, all these different things. Um, and then even, you know, from how I'm managing a property. But I'm, I'm curious from your perspective, are you are you using maps in any of those ways or in any, you know, in any other ways? Could you elaborate on how you use maps in your tool set? Yeah, for sure. And you've nailed, you've nailed them. Um, whether you're considering uh, trying to access a piece of property you've never been on before, whether you're maybe looking for permission ground or even you're looking to, to purchase that property. We, we work with a lot of clients that are in land transactions. So um, before you even touch that property, 
the map is going to be your number one tool. Um, just like you were going to, uh, you know, put you need a blueprint to, to build a house. You need a map to be able to pinpoint where you're going to start scouting um, your, your property. Uh, it's going to save you a lot of time ahead of, uh, if you know what to look for, it's going to save you a lot of time to know exactly where you want to pinpoint some of your initial scouting efforts. So uh, before you even touch that property is, is vital. Uh, and then during, uh, during the season, once you've been on that property, you, you go there and you ground truth some of the features that you look for. So um, right off the bat, I, I look for, um, okay, number one question here is where do I think deer are going to be bedding? Okay, we're going to look for bedding areas. We're going to look for potential food sources, whether there's food plots on the property or not. Um, you're going to look for your bedding areas. You're going to look for your cover areas. You're going to look for your food areas and your, your travel routes in between there. Then you go on the ground and you actually try to ground truth and, and, and prove, you know, figure out if, uh, you know, what you were looking for is there. Look for the deer sign to try to confirm uh what um, you know what what you initially thought with the property so as soon as you hit it you know the the, the map is important and then throughout hunting season say you've been on a property for it's five years you know and you think you know it like the back of your hand which you, you probably do it's always good just to continue to look at that map and really put together um, the pieces of the puzzle from encounters to camera uh, uh, cameras, uh, pictures you've got a specific deer with a trail camera. Um, you look at how you're accessing the property, things you could change about it. It's it's always uh, basically, I'm, I'm always keeping my map updated and looking at the current snapshot of of, of uh, what's going on with it. So um, that's really you know even in season and in post season, the map is always playing an important role there's kind of two different ways you can, you can look at the map uh, and, and look at your property. There's macro and then there's micro. So macro is, is how, how is your land? And you got to you know, zoom out on this. How, how is your the property that you're hunting or thinking about hunting or thinking about buying? How does that property play into the surrounding area? Um, are you competing with a lot of food sources? Do you have the best cover in town? Is your ground a major travel corridor in between bigger chunks of timber? You look, you try to, you try to see how your property plays into the holistic, uh, reasonable area of a deer herd, which is not, I mean, unless you have thousands of acres, um, mature bucks are known to roam the square mile or, or even more depending on where you're at and, and what, what, uh, what your covering food is like. So you got to look at the property from a, a macro level and see how the edges of your property are, are, are able to exploit deer travel on and off of it. And then you look at the micro aspect of, of studying a map. And, and that's really looking for the specific features that we're talking about. Once we're on a, on a piece of property, we're looking for specific features at that micro level that we can uh, exploit to catch up to a deer, you know, whether it's through 
Um, we're looking at ways we're accessing stand locations. We're laying out sanctuaries that we're not going to touch except for maybe during shed season to give deer a, you know, a, a form of security year-round. Um, we're looking at potential places to uh, put in food plots or where we can enhance cover more. We're looking for creek crossings, you know, that micro level once we're actually on a property. So you're never going to get the whole story with a map. You've got to get on the ground and look for sign in, in um you know, confirm really what's going on there and you got to hunt the property. The map is not just going to hunt for you, but it's going to give you a really good step in getting there quicker. And then it's going to be at your side to, to really tell you and guide you through um, and have a conversation with you as crazy as that sounds on, on what you should be doing to make adjustments and have some success in the field. Yeah. Yeah. You, you hit it on the head. I think there's, a couple things in there that I want to comment on. Number one, I love the fact that you brought up the point of the of the macro level and understanding how your property fits into the larger scheme of things. I mean, I think so often we get tunnel vision, right? We look at just our property, just within our property lines and, you know, inform all of our hunting decisions or habitat improvement decisions all based on that. And that's a huge mistake a lot of the time. Because to your point, there's so many other things. A deer's life encompasses a lot more than just a single property in most cases. Um, Mm -hmm. You need to know how all these things factor in it. So when you're looking to buy a property even or lease a property or trying to get permission on hunting properties, understanding how your piece fits into the larger puzzle can be a make-or-break decision. I mean, for example, my Southern Ohio lease is a very small piece. It's 90 acres, of which only like 40 acres are even huntable. The rest is just field. So it's a, it's a pretty darn mm-hmm. small piece of actual huntable ground. But because of how it fits into the larger landscape, it pulls deer in from a much wider area and funnels them into this section. So it makes it a, a much more huntable, a much better property than it might look if you were to just look within the border. So super, super important to, to look at the big picture. Um and then, like you said, it, it can it can guide you throughout the season. Then, too, from a from a decision standpoint, and even before the hunting season, I want to make a point with, when it comes to scouting. There's nothing more important from a scouting aspect, for me at least, than those initial hours or days scouting via map. Um, it makes real on the ground scouting so much more effective and and, uh, and efficient. Really, I mean, especially when I'm hunting these out of state locations that that some other guys do too, mm-hmm. where I'm you know traveling to Iowa or, or Ohio and I only have a weekend or a day or something to scout a new property. I can't walk every square inch of it, right? Most of us don't have the time to walk every square inch of a property that we maybe already have permission to hunt or might have permission to hunt or whatever it is. But if you can look at a map and identify some of those key things you mentioned, Ben, like, all right, I think there's probably bedding here. I think there's probably a good food source here. And then spend your five hours just double-checking those places. Man, you can be a lot more effective with your time. So, so Yeah, yeah you it, can definitely get ahead of the game. Yeah. And one other example that came to mind when you were talking about almost having a conversation with a map, and I like that analogy because um, it's – Maybe I'm weird, but it's true in my case. Like I can look at a map throughout a season over and over. I mean, I literally look at maps before every single hunt and sometimes after every single hunt. Like every single day I'm looking at these maps and I'm thinking through how I'm going to move on the property and how I think deer are going to move on the property and then how the wind is moving on the property. 
And so that that's an everyday thing for me throughout the season. And if I didn't have a good map to look at, I'd be I'd be blind. So an example of this, which is interesting, and it almost paid off in the hugest way. Um, I, and our listeners know I hunted a new property, a couple new properties in Iowa last year. So I got permission on them, and I had like an hour or two to walk both of these properties and they were like 400 to 700 acre properties. So I had very little time to walk them. I just kind of checked some key, some key places. But even with that small amount of scouting, there's still a lot I didn't know. So before my first trip to hunt, my buddy and I sat at a little diner one Thursday morning. And I had my map with me. And we sat down and drank coffee for like two and a half hours with this map in between us. And we just looked at it and talked about it. I think there might be something happening here. And what do you think about how the deer might be using that ridgeline? And kind of this kind of looks like this might be a good way to access based on what I saw here. And here's a creek bottom. I think I can snake up there. So for two hours, we just sat there and, and walked through how we thought deer were using this and how I might want to hunt it. And so when I, when I initially came into that morning, I was thinking, okay, my first hunt, I want to be relatively low risk, right? I don't want to, I don't really know what's going on. So I want to be able to, I want to learn from my first hunt without screwing things up too much. But at the same time, there's a cold front coming and conditions were great. So I wanted to, you know, be in a position where I might be able to catch some action. So there was this point, there was this point of a crop field extending into this larger section of timber that I thought might be worth hunting. So, you know, before pre, pre coffee and maps, that's where I was going to go. So for two hours, we sat talking about, okay, yeah, yeah, that looks good. And we were talking about the wind direction, what it was supposed to be and all that. And somehow for the first two hours or whatever it was that we were sitting there, actually it was the whole conversation. We were thinking that's a good idea. And it wasn't until I went home later that day, I looked at the map again. And it's funny how, I don't know, it's probably more of a me thing than a map thing, but all of a sudden something clicked in my head with that map that I, I was thinking about the revert the whole all the wrong way and i started thinking with that wind i actually think the deer would be traveling a different direction to take advantage of that and also with the wind how it was looking at that map and i i actually will almost like pencil in or marker in sometimes you know where i think or cran in where i think that wind's gonna be blown just so i can visualize i'm a visual guy when it comes to these things so after doing all this thinking i finally had this aha moment that said no you are going about the completely wrong way. You need to go to this other point where it wasn't a point, but an extension of the timber out into the field. So it was the opposite section where I could access it a lot easier, but I found this little hidden water hole that I hadn't seen before until after staring at that map for two and a half hours. And lo and behold, I snuck in there, hung a stand the first night, and I had the biggest eight-pointer, four- or five-year-old buck I've ever seen in my life within 20 yards of my stand. Um, now, sure, there's a little bit of luck in that, but if I hadn't spent two and a half hours thinking and thinking and visualizing and looking at this map, I would have never sat there. Who knows what happened? Um, so that's, yeah, a, yeah. that's a very long-winded example, but I, uh, <laughs> there's so much well, power to look know, at these things. Listen, it, it's, it's, uh, a lot of guys are either hunting public ground, which they're dealing with huge, huge uh, potential areas to hunt, you know, thousands of acres, or maybe they're going out of state on a do-it-yourself hunt somewhere. Um, you've got to maximize and, and make your time in the field as beneficial as possible. And just aimlessly walking around on the property is not going to get you too far. So, yeah, I mean, that's, that's great. And, and I had the same thing, you know, I, I, I got so focused on chasing this one deer this year that I neglected some other parts of the property. And, um, it, it hit me one day, I'm looking at this map. I'm like, man, I was getting some great pictures on this part of the farm of, of uh, some consistent pictures of this this one deer and 
and, uh, and then I see them on the other part of the farm, and it just kind of hit me. And this one hillside that I've never even attempted to check out because it was a little more. I didn't want to put a camera back there because I thought I would do more damage than good, but I just neglected it, and I got focused on this this other buck, you know, that I'm chasing in this pretty confined area. Um, I went there post-season, and sure enough, I mean, it was like a, a light switch went off. Like That hillside that I went to look on, it took me about all but three minutes to find a major buck, like a true buck bedding area, a mature buck bedding area. He had he had multiple trees grinded down like the handle of a Louisville slugger. So, um <laughs> You know, it was kind of like, oh man. Yeah, I mean, it's that's after the fact now. But I'll remember that going into next year, whether that buck that made that specific set of rubs, and and that is his bed right there, whether he survived or or, or not, is regardless to the fact that another one could could be there as well. So, um, you know, it it's something that you, you know you don't always, and us as hunters, especially hunting free range white tails. You never, you, you never always figured out these animals are always one step ahead of you. So you gotta, you know, be looking at, 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 at uh, as much information as you can get to, to catch up to the, one of these boys. So, All right. So we've covered a lot so far, but we haven't even really gotten to the detailed part of all this, which is the meat and potatoes of the specific types of features you can identify on maps and how to use those as you set stands and actually hunt. But before we get to all that, we do need to pause for a very brief intermission of sorts to thank our sponsors of this episode, Trophy Ridge. And today, I wanted to briefly talk about one of the categories that Trophy Ridge participates in, which is arrow rests. And specifically, I wanted to very quickly discuss the pros and cons of the two main types of arrow rests available. You know, those being full containment rests and drop-away rests. And if you're a relatively new bow hunter, this is something you really want to pay attention to. So I thought I'd give you a quick overview. So first, full containment rests. These rests are typically what I'd recommend for newer hunters because they are nearly foolproof. I say that because these rests, you know, as evidenced by their name, fully hold the arrow inside, you know, within that rest. It keeps you from ever having the chance of that arrow falling off or bouncing around off the rest, anything like that while you're actually in the tree. I've had that happen before in the past when I was using the old two-prong rest, which uh, was something I started out with when I was like 13 years old. So this today looks like something like the trophy weight excuse me, the Trophy Ridge Whisker Biscuit, which is essentially a circle of bristles which hold your arrow in the middle and allow the veins to pass through. Or there are like three-prong releases, or sorry, rests, which hold an arrow in place from, from three different directions holding in the middle. So that's a popular option, especially for beginners, but the downside of these is that there's significant contact between your arrow and the rest. And the longer your arrow is in contact with any part of your bow, the greater the chance is that you might move that bow in some way, which in turn impacts the arrow flight. So to avoid that, the drop-away rest was created, which in short is a rest that upon release drops out of the path of the arrow. Now these rests are widely believed to be a little bit more accurate than your full containment, but with many of these you lose some of that arrow security that you would have with a full containment design. So with all that being said, when I first got a compound bow, I used a Trophy Ridge Whisker Biscuit, and it worked great for me. But eventually, I was becoming a little bit more advanced, and I wanted to try to squeeze a little bit more accuracy out of my bow, and I switched to a dropaway. So now, most recently, I've been using a Trophy Ridge HX dropaway rest, which does in fact have some pretty solid containment measures in place as well. 
So I hope this was helpful. You know, we've recently been getting a lot of emails and tweets and Facebook messages from people who've been inspired by the podcast to try bow hunting for the first time. So I thought I'd share this kind of beginner look at arrow rest because that's a that's a topic that I know I struggle with a lot when I first started bow hunting, trying to figure out what's the right way to go. So I hope this was a, a quick, helpful primer. If you want more information, there's there's lots of stuff online. I would definitely recommend you go Google arrow rest and there'll be plenty to read. If you are specifically interested in learning more about Trophy Ridge, you can go to trophyridge.com. So with all that out of the way, now let's get back to the show. So, so true. It's a never-ending process. And I, and I think me and Dan yeah. always like to talk, like to joke that I guess that's probably why we love it so much is that it's just, you can never, you can never put the whole piece, the whole puzzle together. You never solve the equation completely. It's, uh, there's always going to be something more. Um so, so given, I guess, kind of where we've gone so far, right, we've got the basics of our maps down, we've talked about all the different ways you can use maps, I think one of the aspects of using maps that a lot of people either struggle with or just want to learn more about is, okay, what are the specific things I'm looking for on a map, and then, you know, what's that actually look like on the ground, so how do I find it on a map, how do I ground truth it, and then how do hunters and or deer, or I guess both, how do deer use them, and then how do hunters need to use them, um, so I'm going to kind of give you, I'm going to kind of grill you here, Ben, um, you had mentioned a bunch of different types of features as we've been talking so far, and I've been keeping note of some of those, so I want to, I want to dig deeper into a bunch of these in detail, if that, if that sounds good to you, um, so how about funnels at first? We've kind of talked about this a little bit, and we mentioned a lot in the podcast, but I think it's always worth revisiting some of these in detail. Can you kind of lay out for us, okay, what's a funnel? What are the different types of funnels? Um, and that would be interesting hearing like detailed examples of what those different types of funnels might look like. Sure. And, man, this could be a conversation that, that uh, could go on for a, a long time with how to hunt eat all these different types of funnels. But basically the concept of a funnel um, you might be reading in articles or see on uh, on television or whatnot. Um, sometimes they're called pinch points. Sometimes they're called bottlenecks. There's, there's some different names for these things, but basically the goal is to find features that are going to uh, force, that the deer are going to naturally um, be uh, confined, not going to say confined, but basically areas are going to uh, push deer through uh, in, in tighter areas that you can, you know, that, that you can possibly get a shot at. So, um, deer are looking for the most efficient way to get from A to B in the safest manner. You know, that caveat is, is the safest. So it's not always the shortest distance. It's going to be the, the easiest, the easiest way to get from one place to the next, but they feel safe. So, um, you think about funnels, just like we talked about our map layers in, in two different ways. You've got your terrain funnels, so actual to, you know, topographic features that are going to um, guide deer movement based on elevation change. So you've got your benches, your saddles, ditches and draws, points on the end of a ridge, bluffs. All of these features are one way or another going to play into deer movement. Um, and then you've got your land cover features, which are sometimes easier to see. So streams, um, roads, ponds, fence lines, gates, 
these t- gates, gates isn't necessarily a, a, a piece of land cover, but you got these hardened uh, areas that are going to uh, have deer get from A to B in the, in the safest manner. And the, the most blatant one to think about is, is a brushy fence line. So um, I hunt these a lot in Kansas. Uh, every year we go, we go there and there's not big tracks of timber, but there's these smaller woodlots that are connected with brushy fence lines. And that fence line is going to have the most security uh, in a straight path from one piece of timber to the next. And they can be really hot during the rut whenever bucks are, are, are seeking those. So um, you look for these, these uh, areas that are going to, you're going to be able to um, assume that deer are going to be forced into moving a, a certain way based on either the elevation change or the cover. So, yeah. Um, and, and I'd add one other um to the to the to the cover related funnels is actually just cover so not even necessarily a a fence or a gate but also just if there's thicker brush even you know if there's a thick brushy section that crosses a wide open field or if there's a a mm-hmm. line of of cedar trees or a section where two wood two square woodlots come together at a corner and there's just a corner that meets um you know even just brush or or vegetation can yeah. create a funnel in that way if there's not you know funnels in in some other way larger cover so so yeah there there's so many different types of of funnels there you mentioned um when it comes I to wanna, I want to I want to take a step back real quick one thing I didn't yeah. mention Mark was the concept of before we get into to all these different terrain features and and cover features we're going to talk about the concept of edge um edge is really a, a not even necessarily a white tails, but an animal's best friend. It's funny because um, Aldo Leopold Aldo Leopold actually wrote about this. Is a, a famous quote says, um, "The variety and density of life is greatest along edge." So basically, you get these areas that are really attractive to wildlife, whether it's for travel or security or a variety of browse or even just for a social opportunity. Anytime you can look at a map and see a change, which is basically the definition of edge, what I'm talking about is, is where terrain or cover changes over landscape. So where a field meets timber, where um, heavy cover meets open pasture, um, where uh, you know your, your food plot uh, meets your CRP. Really, any any, any change that you look for is really right off the bat. If I'm starting uh, from scratch, I'm going to look at a, at a property and I'm going to look at the aerial and it's going to identify where these changes of edge are. So um, it's pretty cool. I was doing some research about, you know, the concept of edge, concept of edge. And, and uh, Native Americans actually used to burn areas in, in their in their timber and then where it meets the prairie and then deer in, in wildlife in general would go there where there was the succulent regrowth right on the edge of the timber and the prairie it was a hot spot for where they would hunt so it's like you got to think that's almost like the beginning of the history of food plots almost <laughs> which yeah. is really not exactly what they're trying to do but you know the concept of edge from a wildlife perspective is is the most important part so all of these terrain funnels and pinch points and cover uh, features, it all has to do with edge and change. 
stuff. That's a great point. And one other edge that I just thought of as you're kind of running through those different examples, which which kind of applies to a circumstance that I've dealt with in the past. One of the challenges I've had hunting up uh, at my northern Michigan property where I grew up learning to hunt was that a big portion of these properties were just huge timber. It was just tons and tons and tons of timber. And I always was I always kind of struggled to figure out how the heck do you hunt this when there isn't like a, a definite food source. There isn't like a definite bedding area. And one of the things I realized is that even though there aren't these defined kind of features, like there might be an ag land in Mich- lower Michigan or Iowa, even though those easy features weren't there, there still were edges, like you mentioned. And that's what I keyed in on is, okay, where are the edges? And it might not even be like a field to timber, but even an edge within timber. So what I ended up keying in on is I could find an edge between like conifers, like cedars, and where the where the cedar patches bumped up against an edge of open oak timber, all of a sudden I realized, hey, these are edges where all of a sudden deer are traveling or the edge of a little bit of a swampier, wetter area with a higher higher ground, drier area. All of a sudden I started realizing, hey, there's where bucks are cruising too. So in a big timber situation, even finding those edges of unique sec- types of timber or types of cover within that larger timber section can be helpful too. That's a just a specific example I thought of that I found helpful. Um, but going going back i guess to the specifics now that we understand you know the importance of edge which which is huge how about those terrain funnels can we talk about a few of those um in detail i, I want to talk about saddles you already mentioned benches a little bit but how how are deer using saddles and what what does that look like i know you used the, our knuckle example but can you elaborate on saddles yeah. a little bit <laughs> yeah yeah so if you you remember the staring at your fist the the saddle is going to be that low spot in between your your two knuckles or the low spot in real life in between um two hills two hills or or a low spot along a ridge line and a lot of times it seems like deer will go um they'll use those to get from one side of the hill to the next because it's the path of least resistance you know a lot of times deer are quite frankly, lazy creatures. So um, to get from one side of the hill, they want to go on the other side. Uh, they're going to use that lowest spot uh, on, on on the ridge line, which is going to be your saddle. So it's not always, uh, it's not like they're, I know I don't necessarily have any saddles on this property I'm hunting in, in Iowa, but back in Pennsylvania, the, the original property I, I grew up hunting, there's a dynamite saddle and you can identify it from the topo map. Um, it's pretty blatant and it it basically looks like an hourglass. You know, if you're looking at those contour lines in between two hills, but it's a, it's a great stand location we've had for a a really long time. We actually had to switch out stands multiple times from the tree growing into, I mean, it's, it's one of those places where there will always be stand location because especially during the rut for, for a deer, you know, a buck to, to, cover more ground and potentially find that doe quicker or easier that 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 is just a natural easy way for him to hop over to the other side so saddle is a you know that's a that's definitely a good one especially for the rut yeah i i 100 agree and especially like in what it sounds like you had in pennsylvania um again sections of of bigger timber where there's not as much of the cover funnels excuse me like we talked about but these terrain funnels like a saddle like if you're trying to figure out a new piece of property, let's say, uh, you know, public land in Tennessee, 
or West Virginia or something like that, where you have big timber and some rolling topography, some hills and stuff, it's it's hard at first to figure out how the heck do I approach this. But if you look at a map that shows this these topographic contours, like you said, you can see that hourglass type of, of line shape there that indicates, yeah, here's a saddle, and right away, boom, you know, that's a spot that could potentially funnel deer. And like you said, during the rut, it's a great time to be there. And the same thing goes for benches, like you talked about, right? Those are the the gaps where there's the the very close together lines and then a little bit wider and then tight again beneath it, where that's one other example of deer using the path of, of least resistance where it's easier for them to walk that flatter bench along a hillside or a ridge when they're trying to get to point A or B. Um, so these terrain funnels, I think, are huge especially during the rut time frame and when you're trying to trying to figure out how to approach a property that maybe doesn't have these easier generic cover funnels that you see on the outdoor channel or whatever. Um, these can be super helpful. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, so you got saddles and benches. Um, that all kind of plays into um, to, to, uh, to have a saddle, you need a ridge. So a ridge is probably the most common terrain term that we all talk about as hunters. And, and the ridge is essentially um, extending terrain uh, that is at a higher elevation from its surrounding areas. It's, you're going to have a, a, a ridge that extends out as a line. And at the, at the end of that ridge, there's always going to be an end of the ridge and it's going to start to slope down. That's going to be your point. So deer aren't necessarily moving right along the top of, of, of the ridge, like right along the crest of it. I mean, that's going to be where they're, they're able to be, predators could silhouette them. Uh, so it seems like a lot of times these whitetails are moving 30 yards or, 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 or farther off of the edge of the very crest of the ridge on either side. And they, those trails meander along at, at, a, at a certain elevation or, or at an angle from the bottom, working their way up to the, to the top and then towards the point of the ridge got another tree stand um, on the Pennsylvania property that um, has just been dynamite. It's it's not at the very um, – it's at the end of the ridge, and it starts to slope down a little bit. And it's, it's really good because whenever you hunt off of these ridges, you can be assured that you've got a pretty consistent wind. That's one thing that, you, you know, you, it's important. You want to know where your wind is going to be going and the possibility for a wind change, how that's going to affect, you know, the rest of your sit. So – um, at the end of the point, you'll find sometimes multiple trails intersecting, and that that can be really good <clears throat> a lot of different times throughout throughout the year, based on you know if you're hunting in the morning or you're hunting in the in the afternoon, where the food source is, where the bedding is, but it's still bringing multiple possible trails together at an interesting terrain feature. So that point at the end of a ridge is a I mean, that's been a, a big one for me. And the fact that you can hunt with a steady wind, it's, it's always a, a no-brainer when I look at the, the top of map of the aerial. I'm going to find a ridge that looks that looks solid, and I'm going to look at the point and probably get a stand there. And, and so you're saying with the point, you have deer that hypothetically might be traveling on, on either side of the ridge, potentially. And when they yeah. get to the point, though, the point is where those two sides coincide in the middle, right? That's where they come together. So that point gives you the the fact you're working one line of travel, like deer are likely to travel along the edge of that ridge. And then, heck, this is where the two ridges come together. You double your odds, right? Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, we're always looking, you know, we're ground truth and looking for where, you know, one trail is nice, where two trails meet is even nicer. And then when three trails are, are meet, that's that's the real deal. So, um, yeah, a lot of times you can find that at the point. And it seems like um, I've had multiple encounters with a couple bandy bucks that, that are skirting the basically one one side of the ridge and they come right around the point um maybe a third of the way down and then they're they're working their way around they're basically just scent checking as much as they can off of off of that ridge so eventually if it gets the whole way around you unless your your wind is blowing straight up the ridge line or straight off the ridge line um you know that could be a detriment or good if it blows over you know over the, the trail but um it just seems like it's a hot spot for for deer whenever they're they're cruising and working their way from from bed to feed or, or even during the rut when bucks are, are looking for does. Yeah, you make a you made a you brought up a good point about the wind when it comes to sets like that. I've always found, like as you mentioned, most of the travel seems to be at least what I've seen, usually it seems to be one of two places. You're either gonna see a lot of the travel, like you said, like about a third of the way down the ridge, sort of near the top along those edges, or you'll see you'll see some right in the bottom sometimes when there's larger valleys and things, or that might be where they're, you know, coming from another side and dropped on the bottom. But the the challenge with those bottom locations, at least from what I've seen, what a lot of guys I've talked to, is right when you get down low, your wind is not steady. You're gonna get swirling winds and you're gonna get things messed up with the wind. Uh but if you stay up higher and take advantage of that top third, that's where, like you, as you mentioned a second ago, that's where you can get steadier wind. So you're you're safer from from a wind perspective and still taking advantage of a common travel pattern, um, which is why I think, you know, at least for me as I'm hunting more in these areas with a lot of, you know, changing terrain, a ridgeline is, is an automatic go-to area, again, whether it be a saddle or just a ridge without saddles. But again, that's something that consistently seems to attract a consistent pattern of deer movement, which you, you can take advantage of. And yeah, yeah, for sure. And it, it's it's easy to get sucked into the, um, when you're scouting, you know, especially on the bottoms where you can see a lot of good deer sign. Um, you know, I've, I've, I've seen where people write about, you know, bucks prefer those there's lower areas in a, in a draw where it's, it's maybe flat and they're just totally secluded from the pressure of hunting or the, or the pressure of, of other, other deer or doe families, you know, they kind of got their own spot there, these mature bucks. And it, it's tempting. You can go down there and see a bunch of scrapes, a bunch of rubs, but if you don't have a consistent wind, it's only a matter of time until you get picked off and you, you know, you, you damage your hunting season um, pretty fast. So yeah, the, the, the ridges and, and what's on the ridges and what's at the end of ridges are exciting. And then that kind of transitions um, right into, you know, what is a draw and how does that play off of a ridge? And, and from a terrain perspective, man, that can be pretty exciting for, for a deer hunter. So Yeah, so um, I, two things, I guess. I want to take one quick tiny step back um, and just mention you know, the mm-hmm. one other thing with ridges that I've seen that I think is worth worth taking note of again and tell me if you've seen this too um is that lots of times in places with ridge lines that with that kind of terrain you're going to see a lot of deer bedding on ridges or little knobs off of ridges that seem to attract and be quality bedding areas for deer especially buck beds i found um some of the best buck beds i found have been in those types of situations where you where you see a little knob or something coming off of a consistent ridge with a little patch of cover on it maybe and you'll find that buck at least from what I've heard and seen, lots of these bucks will bed with their back to the ridge, looking down over that draw or that valley, 
and then they can they can watch ahead of them and they can smell behind them, um, and it's, it's kind of a great situation for for a bucker or any deer to bed. So that's something I always key in on when I'm looking at a map. I try to identify those ridges and then okay, that might be a, a, a funnel, but then also where might the bedding areas be along that along that uh, ridge, and then that's going to help inform how I hunt, especially during the rut too. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. The the um, it's funny you mentioned the buck bedding areas. There's a, a phenomenal article that was just written um, by a guy you've had on multiple times on the show, Jeff Sturgis. Um, he just put together this article two days ago that talks about different buck bedding areas, and that's one scenario that um, he kind of lays out three different uh, environments for for a whitetail hunter from swampland to flat agricultural land to really hill, hilly country. And what you just mentioned there is, is definitely one of the prime spots to uh, for, for a buck to bed. It's kind of higher up on that ridge, overlooking the bottom with his wind in his back. And then what's interesting when it comes to this hill country and your, and your ridges and, and the benches, you're hunting off of benches on the side of these ridges, um, you got you got your thermals that come into play. So um, just, a, a, I guess, a quick breakdown. The thermals is essentially wind currents that rise and fall throughout the day from the atmosphere heating up or cooling down. So uh, if a buck is bedded in the morning on uh, higher ground, he's able to smell everything that's, that's below him. He's probably going to be able to see a decent amount, but if he's in thick cover, he'll at least be able to smell everything that's below him because as the sun peaks up over the, over the, the horizon and starts to heat up the air, the, those wind currents are going to just come from the bottom and they're going to rise up and it's literally going to be like a wind. I, I, I'll never forget this, this past fall. I was just, it was like the picture perfect day. It's actually Halloween morning. I believe, um, I was sitting there in a famous stand that my dad and I call skyscraper and, uh, it's, it's right off the side of a ridge and there's no wind, but I'm, I'm, I'm sitting in a, in a, uh, a beech tree, uh, an old one, great, great tree to put a tree stand in but regardless uh i'm looking at these branches that extend out and they hold their leaves longer throughout the year than, than a lot of other trees and these the, the whole limb is just rising and then 10 seconds later it'll drop and then it'll rise for a little while and then it'll drop and i'm thinking man that's crazy and it just it struck me I and mean, that's a thermal i'm seeing right there so huh. that air is literally coming from the bottom rising the whole way up the, the, the side of that hill um, and th- th- this must have been a pretty aggressive one. It was like a really cold morning until the sun came up. So it's interesting to see that. And then as the sun sets, you're literally going to get the reverse of what happens. And that sun sets, that air is cooled, and it's going to drop back down into those cooler areas. So yeah. just another thing to think about whenever you know it comes to your scent and your wind and how all of that's playing into the terrain. And, you know, it's all just one big crazy picture, you know, for a white tail hunter. Yeah, yeah, great, great point, especially when you're hunting in areas that have this type of changing terrain with ridges and stuff. That's where these things really, really make a big difference. So huge point. Um, and I guess just to, I don't, I can't remember if we mentioned at the beginning of this, uh, the ridge little piece or not, but, but when you're looking at a map, Right, you can't necessarily see a ridge really well on just a plain aerial map, but if you have one that shows terrain relief or that has topographic lines, you'll be able to see. You know, correct me if I'm wrong, but right, we're going to see consistent parallel lines that are getting that are you know at least tighter together than they are at the top or bottom, right? 
And then um, the yep. point would obviously be where two of those come together to form what looks like, you know, like you mentioned, a finger coming off of your knuckles, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, you've nailed it. Just, lo- you know, parallel lines going along the, uh, uh, the same route. Perfect. So, so you mentioned draws. Talk to me about draws. What's that going to look like on a map? And then how about uh, in, in the field? What's it look like? How are deer using those? Okay. Yeah, so if you're looking at a traditional taco map, uh, the draw, the draw is going to be, look, um, how do I describe this? It's basically, I almost look at it as like a, the beak of a bird cutting into or pointing towards a ridge. And, and really what that means is that what's happening on the ground is that um, water runoff is going through time, erode, it's going to find that lowest area and it's going to continue to erode, continue to erode, and basically make small valleys that come right off of that ridge and cut down over the hill. And they can get pretty drastic. Um, They can get pretty deep. So the draw is really that whole, you know, um, let's say you're, you're, you're at the very bottom and you're at a, at a creek bottom and you're looking uphill and you see this cut that's, it's really definitive and it's like somebody almost took a, a knife and, and cut right through the middle of the hillside right up towards the ridge. That's going to be your draw. And that draw is um, can be gradual or it can be steep. But one thing you'll find consistently is at the very top, right at the head of that draw, is going to be probably some pretty good deer sign. Um, as... As that water is running off the side of the hill, it's created this this ravine. Um, it gets deeper and deeper and more aggressive. Uh, and those deer, if they're in a in a rush or they're they're escaping, they're going to jump right over it potentially. But as they're just you know having their normal pattern, they're not just going to cross over something really steep. They're going to work their way kind of up the hill, up towards the top where they can get around the head of that of that draw. So it's a dynamite stand location, another good one for, for wind. You can have it depending on, on uh, a lot of times you'll see this where the draw will come up and meet the very top is, is a field up on top. Um, they kind of go hand in hand with ditches, which we can get into, but uh, it all has to do with water runoff and there's small valleys that go down over the hill and deer will use the, the sides of them and work their way up and down, and then they'll cross at the very top or maybe somewhere where at the bottom um, of, of, uh, of the draw where it gets a little more gradual at the bottom too. So it's kind of like that, that hardened place where it's tougher to get from one side to the next. They'd rather just, instead of making the jump, go and work their way up the top and work around. And, and it's kind of, you can almost use this in conjunction with ridges. It's it's like a funnel within a funnel of sorts. You know, let's say hypothetically during the rut, you're going to have a lot of bucks cruising that ridge. So we've already said, okay, lots of times the ridge line will, will funnel deer along the top third because of all these reasons. Well, then in addition to that, if there's one of these draws that comes up the ridge that's going to force deer to, to move along that ridge up at the very top of it, now all of a sudden you know, okay, it's likely deer are going to be on this ridge. And now it's even more likely that if they're on the ridge, they're going to have to go through this even narrower section. Um, mm-hmm. So I think that's a perfect example of how you can look at a map before even ever being on a property and see, okay, here's a ridge. Here's the draw on the ridge. 
I'm betting this point right here is is an exceptional spot to start my scouting and to potentially hunt during certain parts of the year, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Absolutely. And and like you mentioned, that's essentially the same with, with ditches, uh, kind of the same thing, right? We're talking about water coming off the top and, and creating a cut? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So the ditches is really going to be a similar concept, um, but instead of a big hardwood ridge with draws com- draws and spurs coming off the side, um, let's take uh, a, a flat, relatively flat piece of agriculture that's being farmed. Well, that water is going to run off one way or another off of that field, and it's going to find the lowest. It's going to find that lowest um, elevation and, and, and run and erode you're going to find ditches. So sometimes you can find these things without a topo map. You just look at an aerial. If you look, if you can see all these uh, fingers of timber jutting into the field, that's probably where you're going to find a ditch because it's going to be where water has naturally run off. They can't farm there because it's too, it's too steep of a slope or they're not, they're not going to farm where there's going to be a bunch of water. So by nature, th- that area grows up with brush and, and, and timber, and water is going to come right off that field and cut right down into that finger of timber. So the ditch is really the same concept. These deer aren't just going to run back and forth, back and forth throughout the whole. They're not going to run perpendicular to the ditch the whole way down. There might be a, a, a select crossing or two, but they're really going to scoot around the property at the head of that at the head of that ditch. And uh, a lot of times you can find it, it goes back right back into what we're talking about with edge. So you got not only this terrain funnel where it's just easier to get around that finger of timber and head to the next part of the field, but you got edge as well. So you got that sense of security for a deer that's scooting along. So there's efficiency there. There's, there's security. Um, you know, it's a lot of good things can happen with these ditches. So, Sometimes you can find, and this would transition right into that, the, the, the next terrain feature we could talk about is the creek crossings. Um, the ditch is really going to define where deer are going to travel the majority of time. Um, and you can almost go and ground truth these ditches and find crossings occasionally um, throughout where maybe it gets a little gradual where you know, the, 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 the bank may not be as eroded away as another part. So, um, a quick, quick story though, real quick about draws before we totally get off of them. Yeah. Um, this past fall, um, the pork buck. So I ran into him in October and I encountered this deer a bunch. I had an idea that he was living off of this one spur, I'll call it, which is basically like a secondary ridge. Uh, you got the, the main, the main top, and then you got all these ridges extending off from the top. And in between those, those spurs or, or secondary ridges are the draws. Well, I had an idea. He's on this one ridge. He's, he's bedding there. And I set up on the, the next spur over and we're separated by a draw. And, um, you know, I, I, literally within about a half hour um, of, of, of daybreak, sure enough, I could see him with a doe, but not totally with her. You know, he, he was, he was, he was, um, he was checking her out, but he wasn't actually tending her. So I grunted at him and I mean, you know, we're talking November 8th or 9th. I mean, he is in, you know, total um, dominance mode. You know, I grunted at him and he just came, uh, he threw his head up, looked right over at me, and 
he just made a beeline straight for me, not using the head of the, the, the draw that we're talking about. I mean, he went right down over the hillside like it was a cliffhanger. And by, by the time he disappeared, I grabbed my bow and I'm swinging around. I could already see his tines coming back up. So um, afterwards, you know, after the postseason, I went and, and scouted that area. Man, I can't believe he went through there. And, you know, he was able to jump over the ravine of the, of the draw. But it just go, goes to show, I mean, when these deer want to get from one place to the next, they're fully capable of, of, of doing that in the fastest way possible, you know? So it's not always a guarantee with, with what we're talking about here, but it's just, it's kind of a, an interesting thing. So, yeah. So, so I'm wondering though, what happened? He turned around with a bow, his, his tines showed up. What happened? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, the way I was hunting, it was, it was kind of a good wind, but it was, it was, where where he came he he, uh, he he caught my wind it was it was a setup that would have worked for a lot of scenarios other than this one and he 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 uh basically i mean i was at full draw and he needed about three more steps in to, to to hit my lane and and he, he slammed on the brakes and and he knew something wasn't right so oh, man. you know i i a lot of the times um early season i'm hunting those winds where i'm not I'm fully confident I'm not going to get busted, but come game time during the rut, you know, you're sitting, you know, full days. Um, obviously you can make adjustments in the morning or evening, but you know, sometimes I'll get a little more aggressive, um, you know, with these deer and with these winds and try to hunt a buck on a wind that's almost, you know, almost perfect for him, but not completely and almost completely horrible for me, but, but not so, <laughs> yeah. you know, you know, totally, almost totally in his favor, but a little bit in my favor as well. Just so happened he busted me on this, on this circumstance, but I ended up seeing him three or four more times after that. And he, I didn't spook him off of the whole North face of, of what I, where I was hunting, but it's just, you know, interesting to see how these terrain features can, can drive these deer in other times, man, they just go where they want to go. Yeah, that's that's the truth. I think what you said was a really good point. Was that these things aren't rules? They're they're not. These are similar. These are simply you know, patterns of of yeah. sometimes consistent use, but they're they're still wild animals and they can do crazy things. Sometimes. For sure. So that's it. Yeah. So you mentioned creek crossings. What? Uh, yeah. A. I guess my first question about creek crossings is, can you can you see creek crossings or where certain features of a creek will funnel deer from a map, or is that something you have to ground truth? No, you can definitely see it from the map. Um, I learned this from uh, Bill Winky. Uh, he, he's put this out in multiple publications. I actually talked to him in person about this, you know, and it's like when it comes to no-brainer, guaranteed features that deer are going to use, it's creek crossings. You can see this with um, you can see it with a topo map, and you can see it with an aerial. You can see it with both, and whenever the, if the topo is combined with the aerial, it just jumps out at you, you know, um, completely but as the stream is winding is stream is, is is going along its, its own path um and it makes these turns and twists and these these s curves let's just call them s curves every time that that stream makes a drastic curve you got to think that water is just by the the forces and laws of physics washing away continually washing away that side where it makes that turn so it's going to be flowing down with momentum hit as it turns it's going to hit that bank and it's going to cut the side of that bank and then it's going to 
work its way down again, you know, down, down the rest of the stream. But where you see those big curves is where you're going to see your most drastic edges of, of the creek bank. And then in between those curves where the, the stream gets straight again, you're going to find your, your shallowest, uh, most gradual uh, stream bed edges, which means that those deer are going to be crossing there. So the more you have, and this is all from Bill, I, you know, I'm, I'm translating this from, from, from Mr. Winky here, but it's pretty slick. If you look at a map, uh, look at a map, it's got a stream in it and it's got a bunch of S curves. That's just going to enhance and, and, and dramatize more Creek crossings. So you go and you find maybe a couple places where there's a nice S S curve and you, you're in between two curves and you find a, a straightaway, go ground truth that area and you're probably going to see uh, an air, uh, a creek bank that is more gradual and probably a pretty good deer, deer trail there. Now, on the other hand, if you've got a, a stream that's just going straight as an arrow, working its way through the timber or a field or whatnot, it's not going to be as um, it's not going to be as, as drastic um, of a concentration of, of, of creek crossings because those deer can you know, hop along that, that bank probably is not changing its, its, uh, its face much at all. So, you know, it kind of depends on the, the lay of the land, but like in pasture, a lot of pasture ground in the Midwest, I mean, these streams just seem to wind and make every twist and turn and they can really show you some, some great places to potentially set up as a, as a Creek crossing where a deer is just getting from one place to the next. He's going to funnel right through there and you're going to get a crack out. Yeah. And I guess that, I guess to all of these different types of features, right? We've, we've talked about all these different land features that in some way will influence deer to travel a certain, through a certain area. Um, and so they're all in some way or another are kind of like funnels because, because they're influencing deer in some way. Um, we've talked a lot about how these can be hunted during the rut, right? Cause that's just a kind of usual way of hunting the rut is get into a funnel where deer are going to travel through a lot and you're going to have a good chance. Um, but I think it's worth noting for all these things, especially something like a Creek crossing, you know, funnels can be hunted or all these features can be hunted effectively at other times of the year too. It's just that you want to be between the two main goals of a deer's life, which is bedding and feeding. So if you can find a Creek crossing between where they want to eat and where they're bedded, well, now you've got the funnel between bedding and feeding, which is their most likely route of travel. So I think that can be applied early season. It can be applied late season. It can be applied during the rut. It just depends on where do you, where does this feature lie between? And then that's what's going to determine whether you hunt it at, you know, October 1st or November 1st, right? Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, the goal is to get, the goal is to have some sense of understanding of where these deer are, are bedding and then where they're feeding and how can you get in between or at their destination one way or another, whether it's afternoon or morning, how you can get there before they do. And, and if you, you know, if you don't end up seeing the deer that you want, how do you get out of there without, without spooking them and blowing them out? So entry and exit is just as important here as where we're hunting. In fact, you know, um, a lot of people say, and I think this is a fact that it's more important than where you're hunting, making sure that you're getting in and you're getting out undetected so that you're not educating the deer herd, because you could have all of these amazing pinch points and funnels and, and, and all these great terrain features that you can hunt and you're excited about. 
But if you're educating the deer that are living there that would be using those funnels that they didn't know you were there, then, you know, you're, you're wasting your time. So getting in, getting out, it's huge. Um, and these features play their own roles throughout all of hunting season, whether it's September, early season, all the way into January, late season. Yeah, so true. And it's, it's one of those things we talk about a ton, right? Almost every podcast or every other podcast, we mention access and entry and exit so many times. But it's one of those things that, and I'm guilty of this as anyone, is that it's easier said than done in a lot of cases. I mean, there's there's yeah. so many times where I know I need to enter or exit a certain way, but I'm rushed on time or I don't want to go through the briars this time or whatever it is. And it's, it's easy to get lazy with it, but I think that's why it's important that we always mention it because I need to remind myself sometimes that, hey, you, you have to sometimes go the extra mile or whatever it is because if you don't, yeah, it might make it a little more convenient for you, but you just blew your hunt. So... It's yeah, a, yeah, for sure. I mean, it, the the access is is always. I mean, it is easy to kind of get in that. I, I've I've been guilty of getting in the same thing where you know you, you kind of have an idea of okay, the deer are bedding there, they're feeding here. I've got to leave this way. But if you continue to pound that area in and out, in and out, in and out, eventually they're going to figure they're going to they're going to catch a trail. So um, you know, it's it's a constant battle to to kind of be one step ahead of of them, which is it's hard to do. Um, I remember talking to Jeff Sturgis one time, you know, and he mentioned that on, especially on public ground, he would go in and he would literally have a different, even if he's hunting the same stand, he's got four consistent wins, four mornings in a row. He's going to access that stand four different ways to number one, prevent from educating the deer, but number two, to prevent from educating hunters. So guys that are sharing property, you know, if you can scatter yourself, um, how you're entering and exiting at the stand location, it's going to going to be good for you that's a great point yeah i like that yeah. and i think to the whole point of our conversation is you can make some of these decisions on how you enter and exit again by looking at these things on a map thinking about it on a, almost a macro perspective to a degree you know thinking about okay how does my property fit into the larger scheme of things how do i need to get in and out to make sure i'm not spooking these deer that maybe aren't on my property but but could be influenced by my movements and all that so um it's it's something that can't be understated now We've we've covered all sorts of different types of funnels, benches and saddles and ditches and ridges and points and creek crossings and, and how all these different things can look like, can how they look on a map, how to identify them on the ground, how deer use them. Um, there's one other one that came to mind for me that I was reminded of by something you posted on Facebook. You posted a map, an image of essentially a low spot in a field, a swale. You posted a picture of a swale and how deer use that. Can you talk about that a little bit, how you can see that on a map, why that's important? Yeah, absolutely. Um, that post received some pretty awesome feedback, and it's it, and it's uh, it, it looks pretty basic on a map, but basically all you're looking for is a low spot in the field. Um, I call them, I just always call them field creases, but they're, they're also known as swales or... Um, I think some people call them field saddles, and that's really what it is. It's it's a low spot in between two higher places in the field, and a lot of times that that uh, in that crease it'll it'll connect uh, at, at the at the side of each uh, at each side of that low spot will be a finger of timber that probably has uh, a ditch or a draw coming from it um, that is pointing towards another. Uh, low spot, which is going to be the head of the opposite ditch or finger or draw. And 
bucks I've seen them multiple times use come right out to the field. And it's like, you know, if you're in a tree stand, you know, you're like, man, that, that thing has a lot of confidence just scooting right through that the middle of that field in the middle of the day. But the fact is, um, he's preventing himself from being silhouetted. And uh, a lot of times he'll be coming out from one, he's worked one, one area timber sent checking for deer or sent checking for does. And then he'll use that, that swale, that low spot to scoot through and just hop right over the other side of that field and check the edge and dive into the timber on the other side. So you got two dynamite spots, probably for different wind directions that you can, you can hunt right there. It's a, it's a, it's a great spot, not necessarily just for the rut. I mean, all of these, all of these features can be hot for the rut for the most part, but, um, you know, if, if, if deer feel safe and it's easy, they're probably going to use that. And that's, that's a good one for sure. I don't know. I don't know what you've seen, but um, I have seen this type of feature be particularly deadly in the case where that field is is relatively narrow. So, like in a lot of places where you have these fields that run along the top of high ground, right? Like we mentioned, you'll you'll have the ditches or the ridge or the draws down low, and that's all timber. So, like for example, in Iowa, where I where I was hunting in Iowa this year, all the fields are up high, all the timbers down low in these cuts and the valleys and stuff. Because of that, it makes these like fingers, almost like a hand. You've got a hand stretched out, and each one of the fingers extending out is a finger of that field. So in those mm-hmm. circumstances where the field is like a narrow finger extending out, those are the spots that I've just found that, man, when you find the low spot in that field, there's a ton of travel across through there. Um, oh, yeah. That's just a really good spot. If, you, if you're going to hunt a field edge for whatever reason, um, definitely, I think, that's where you're going to see a lot of the entry and exit of the field come into play. Oh yeah. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I've even had situations like Turkey hunting when we're moving from one spot to the next and, and you, you can't, um, it's not always evident until you're walking along that field where the, the mo- mo- a lot of agricultural fields will have a role to them and just, it doesn't take much, you know, even if you're six foot five, you know, to, which I'm not, but, Regardless, you know, it doesn't take much to hide, you know, whenever you're in, in one of these things. So I can remember last year, you know, um, turkey hunting here in Iowa and moving from one spot to the next. And sure enough, I mean, it doesn't look like there's anything out there. And right in, the, in, in one of these swales, there's, there's two big longbirds and they saw us coming, you know, a mile away, but I didn't see them. So um, it's not only deer that are using these these. Uh, low spots to their advantage. It's all wildlife, but these are the things you got to look for. Um, and it always goes back to, you know, looking at the map and then ground truth in it. But yeah, yeah, for sure. The, the that specific feature is, is a deadly one and one that's not always talked about. And when you're looking for that on a map, let's say with, if you have a map that shows topographic lines, is it, is it just going to look like a saddle, but just like a much less exaggerated saddle or, or different? Yeah, yeah, it's gonna it's gonna look like uh it's gonna look like a a saddle in the middle of the field. Um, but even if you don't have topo map, if you can see if you see the edge of timber kind of peek out to the edge of the field, and then literally if you draw a straight line from that to the next side to the opposite side of the field, if you have timber poking out into the side there, guaranteed that's a low spot in the field. You got to check it out. So you don't always need topo map to do, to see that it, it definitely helps though. And that's essentially what it is. It's a saddle. You're going to see, um, you're going to see your lines 
coming closer together as it goes downhill. And then when it hits the bottom of that swell or that crease, it's going to be flat for a minute. And then it's going to the opposite side is going to have your lines tighter together again. So, um, yeah, yeah, that's a good one. Nice. Yeah. Like you said, it's, it's often overlooked, but can be a, a really great place to focus some time. And I think a lot, you know, we kind of alluded to it as we've gone along, but it's all about, you know, when you're trying to pick a spot to hang a tree stand, you know, it, it, it's, it can be difficult if you're just saying, okay, where's the bedding area or here's a food plot. I'm going to hunt on the edge of the food plot. Or I think deer bed in this chunk of timber. I'm just going to set up a tree stand randomly somewhere around here. I think a lot of us start deer hunting like that. And then you slowly realize that you need to look for the thing within the thing. So, okay, yeah, I now I know I want to be near this bedding area, but where's the best place to be along this ridge that approaches the bedding area? Where well, that's where these types of features come into play when you start realizing, okay, I know there's a bedding area here, so I need to be on the ridge near this bedding area. Oh, by the way, there's this draw that comes up the ridge. Now I want to be there. Or I now I see that there's a swale in the field above me that's probably going to pull a lot of the traffic coming up this ridge to probably want to cross here. So it's, it's putting all these pieces together to start, to start like identifying the hot spots, those places where, where travel intersects and where you're going to have that greatest chance to be within bow range. If you're a bow hunter or, or gun range too. So it's, it's a big old puzzle. I feel like these looking at the map really helps you bring the pieces together. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And it's, you know, um, you always get the best sense of direction when you're looking at a map that's blatantly telling you which way is north, south, east, and west. And um, it's easy to grab, you know, uh, this happened to me in Kansas two years ago. Um, go in, and I saw this dandy, dandy buck, middle of the day. I'm going to forget this, freezing, freezing cold. Actually, Iowa, the pond was snows like the second week of November. I was in Kansas, it was equally as frigid. Um, saw a, a, a really nice buck come scooting through about. Uh, 12, 12, 30 in the afternoon. It totally justified, you know, the, the, the painful whole day sit. But um, <laughs> anyways, I saw him, grunted at him. He didn't want to have much to do with me. And uh, I just kind of watched him for the for uh, the rest of the time. And, and he worked his way down and ended up making a scrape in this small woodlot. And I knew the next day I was going to have another north. Uh, the wind was going to go from northwest to straight north. And I went back and looked at the map and realized, man, this is going to be an aggressive setup, but as long as the wind stays true north, my scent is going to be basically blowing straight down towards where he's coming from, but he's going to be a little bit farther east work because of the, 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 fa- uh, the fence line in the pasture. So if you come out hugging the edge of that fence line from the pasture, uh, then I was going to be okay, and I, I set up for that. And the only way I, I, I was able to, looking at the map, um, going in there, you, you get an idea into the woodlot, you get an idea of what the sense of direction is. But um, anyways, went in there, hung the stand, got out of there. And then the next morning, he, you know, it was like the, the, the perfect script reading that's ever happened in my hunting career. He came right up that fence line, dropped down in, and I shot him at seven yards before I could uh, he could catch my wind. So you want to look for those situations where if you've got an idea of bucks coming from a certain area and, and you can, he thinks he's got a great wind to be safe or an almost great wind to be safe. And you've got a wind that's almost horrible for you, but you, you know, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, and you can have some, you can have some luck there. You don't always want to look for the situation that you have a hundred percent awesome wind for you. You're never going to get busted. Um, 
because sometimes there's deer, you know, it's good for you and it's not necessarily good for them when they're trying to stay alive. So, yeah. you know, it's just a lot of different things you can do when you look at the map and uh, it can tell you a lot. And, um, you know, sense of direction is obviously a, a really important one whenever you get the wind report every morning. Yeah. Yeah. So true. So man, we, we've covered, we covered a lot here. Um, we're, we're coming up on time here, but is there any other major topic related to, you know, using maps to better hunt deer? Is there anything we've missed, Ben? Or we, or do you feel we covered as best as we could in this time? Man, I think we covered a, a lot. We covered a lot of ground. And, and I want to caveat all this, everything we talked about, by saying that I am by no means a, a, a mega expert in the field of whitetail strategy and hunting and habitat management. I've just got, um, you know, a certain knowledge that I've acquired over the years with, with Hunterra and, and just by being a sponge with literally around every, every hunter that, uh, that I'm around, I try to soak in as much information as possible. So a lot of these tactics I've confirmed over the years from, you know, sightings that I've seen and, and, and encounters that I've had, but a lot of it also is just, um, by default from clients that I've worked with over the years or partners that, that I have that, you know, we start talking shop on, Hey, you know, what's going on in your property? This looks like a good area. Is it? And bouncing ideas off of them. And, and that's where, you know, I was able to get, you know, a decent grasp on what's, uh, what to look for out of a map, but I'm by no means, you know, uh, the encyclopedia of, of, of deer hunting expertise with maps or anything like that. But well, um, uh, no, man, I appreciate you. You having me on the show, you know? Oh, definitely. This has been great. And I think, uh, your, your level of expertise is, is just right there up there with all the other experts or quote unquote experts of deer hunting, because we're on the same boat, right? We're, we're just learning from other people, taking whatever advice we can, trying to apply it in the field and seeing what works. Um, so, so I think you, you've done a great job of, of cataloging a lot of those lessons learned. And it's been super helpful here for all of us. Cause I think this is one of those topics that you hear these buzzwords a lot. We talk about them a little bit, but we don't necessarily dive deep. Um, so I, I think that this would be will be very helpful for for everyone listening, and, and I hope it has been. So, so Ben, we we haven't really got to go into detail about Huntera yet, but you know, can you just for those who aren't familiar, can you share a little bit more detail about what exactly your company is making? You know, what kind of maps you're making, what's different about them, um, why they're kind of interesting? Yeah, absolutely. So we specialize in custom uh, land maps for hunters habitat specialists, uh, ranchers, land real estate agents, really anybody that needs the best view possible of their land um, is who we work for. Essentially, the foundation of Hunterra is the blending of uh, imagery or aerial photography and terrain shadowing or relief so that you can see the rises and falls of your property and all the terrain features that, that we talked about um, in addition to the actual picture and the land cover of your property with the aerial. Um, and on top of that, we, we add uh, layers like your, your property border or topo lines, which is when we came out with that feature last year, it was pretty, um, it, it, it was really well received. It, we create what we think is the ultimate map for, for hunters. Um, and we can map anything from whether you got 40 acres all the way up to, 4,000 acres and everywhere in between. Um, we make maps on two different types of paper. We do field maps for taking out to the field. It's going to be durable for you throughout the whole, the whole hunting season and the off season. And then we make poster maps, which are for interior display. Got a number of different sizes, but 
our um, what we the foundation of our company is really built around working one on one with each one of our customers. We get guys up all the time. You know, they call us up all the time and say, "Hey, I've got this scenario. What do you think size wise? You know, I've got this much ground. Um, what do you think I should get?" So uh, we work one on one the whole way through uh, the review process, uh, and then once you're once you're happy with um, the way the map is designed, uh, that we do the review pro- process through email. Once you're happy with that uh, and give us the approval, that's when we'd actually send to the print shop. So got a lot of cool products and, and our goal is just to make the, the ultimate map for, for the outdoorsman. Well, uh, I, from my experience, at least from what I've seen, you're definitely living up to that goal. I uh, have been very impressed with his maps. And as I've alluded to throughout our conversation, have been using them over the past couple of years and, and really they do help make all these different features and um, funnels and whatever. It really helps them pop. It helps you see these things in clear daylight and then allows you to make smart deer hunting or management habitat improvement decisions. So it's a great tool, and uh, I appreciate you sharing your incredible amount of experience and insight and, and these stories and examples I think have, at least for me even, have, have shed light a lot on these things. So, So Ben, thank you so much for your time. Man, thanks a lot, Mark. I really appreciate it, and uh, uh, certainly appreciate the platform to to share uh, what we do with uh, with everybody that's listening from the Wired to Hunt Nation. So thanks a lot. Hey, absolutely, and and it's Huntera dot com, right? If people want to learn more about what you're doing, Huntera dot com. Yeah, yeah, Huntera dot com, and uh, we, we're uh, pretty active on. Uh, we've got a Facebook page and Instagram page, and uh, yeah, those uh, those are the ways you can you can uh, reach out and learn more about what we do. Perfect. Well, I'll make sure to include links to that in the blog post. And uh, until next time, Ben, have a terrific evening. Thanks, Mark. All right. Bye-bye. So there you go. Another episode in the books. And I hope you all found this deep dive into mapping as helpful as I did. I, I Like I said numerous times throughout the episode today, I just love this topic of maps and how you can use these tools. And I think Ben did a great job of breaking things down to the basics and then going into some of these more detailed concepts too. I had a blast with it. So hopefully uh, I'm not the only one. Now before we shut things down, I do have a couple quick requests if you don't mind. So first, if you haven't done so yet, we would greatly appreciate it if you could leave us a rating or review on iTunes. It is a huge, huge help to us. So so thank you in advance for doing that. It means the world. And while you're on iTunes, if you haven't subscribed yet to the podcast, make sure you do so. That allows you to get all the new episodes delivered automatically right to your phone or tablet or computer. Makes things super easy. So make sure to subscribe. And speaking of subscribing to podcasts, if you're not subscribed yet to the Whitetail Q&A podcast, That's another one you should definitely check out. That is my other podcast, the short-form, quick podcast in which we answer one listener-submitted question. That is a podcast I would love for you guys all to go listen to, to subscribe to, and uh, if you haven't yet either, leave a review there as well. That is awesome. So, So thank you in advance. You can do that. And finally, we do need to thank our partners who help keep this podcast on the air. So thank you to Sick Gear, Trophy Ridge, Bear Archery, Redneck Blinds, Ontario Maps, Ozonics, Lacrosse Boots, and the Whitetail Institute of North America. And finally, thank you all for being the best damn podcast audience on the planet. I really, truly appreciate you tuning in. So until next time, have a great day, chase those whitetail dreams, and stay wired to hunt.
I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. 